Our scripture this morning is going to be found in Acts chapter 4. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, whether that is hardback or electronic, if you've got your, uh, the word before you. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. I'll read the word and then pray and then we will begin. When they were released, now, if you're not familiar with the context, you won't recognize that this is Peter and John, the apostles. They've been arrested. When they were released, they went to their friends, meaning the other disciples, the early church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do to whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to the scriptures at this time praying for your grace to illuminate our hearts and minds and our understanding of your word. And to take that which you have presented in the text and enable us to comprehend it by the illuminating work of your spirit. And then, Father... Uh, not just to be those who hear the word, but those who hear the word, receive it into our lives, and undertake to live accordance with what your word would teach us. Father, we pray that we might faithfully live out our calling to follow Jesus. And we pray like Jesus uh, said to his first disciples, that in living out our lives, we would be salt and light to this world. Father, enable us as we come to a new year to be more deeply committed to live in accordance with the gospel and to make your gospel known. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the context for these nine verses that we're going to look at this morning from verses 23 through verse 31 happens to begin at the very beginning of the previous chapter in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, verse 1, you have the apostles uh, Peter and John uh, going into the temple in the afternoon at the time of prayer, afternoon prayer. Uh, And while they're walking along, a lame man who was begging for handouts, begging for alms, uh, looked up at them. And if you know the story, you know that Peter and John said to him, you know, gold and silver have we none. 
Uh, and then they spoke in the name of the Lord Jesus and said, essentially, that's what we have we give unto you. And they said, take up your bed and walk. And the lame man is healed. That miracle, uh, the tremendous joy that it produces in the man's life, as well as a testimony to those around, uh, draws a huge crowd. And we have the second great preaching of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, the first on the day of Pentecost, and now just perhaps uh, within a couple of weeks, this great message being proclaimed. And in that message, uh, Peter makes it very clear that it's the name of Jesus by which this man is healed. It's the name of Jesus, that same Jesus, he says, whom you killed through the agency of wicked men. And he makes it very clear that they are blameworthy for the death of Jesus, along with uh, the leaders of the Jewish nation and the Gentile leaders, the Roman people who are involved. He said, but this same one that you killed, God has raised from the dead, preaching the resurrection in the name of Jesus, and that by repentance and by faith in Jesus, their sins can be forgiven, and God will send his times of refreshing to them. That Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. While this great crowd is gathered, while Peter is preaching, uh, it turns out that this came to the attention of the authorities, the Jewish authorities. And so priests show up, the captain of the temple shows up, who's like second in charge to the high priest himself, and some Sadducees show up. And um, it says in the text that they're annoyed <laughs> at what the disciples are doing. They are arrested and taken into custody, but because it's late, there's no arraignment or trial for them until the very next morning. Sanhedrin gathers together, basically interrogates them, investigates the, what's going on here. They find out it's about Jesus. They're very, very unhappy. And so they begin to threaten uh, the disciples that they're not to preach, they're not to speak, they're not to teach in this name any longer. And that's when Peter, in all boldness, says, you know, whether it's right or not to you, what's right before God is that we would proclaim the name of Jesus. And then he makes it very clear. Because it is in Christ and in his name that there's salvation. In fact, there's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved, is what Peter says, Acts 4.12. Well, they're threatened further, told not to preach, and then they're released. And so our story picks up, at verse 23, upon their release from prison. And their response to this is to pray. But we should notice that, that what happens here is the very beginning of the Jewish persecution that grows, increases, even to the level of not just arresting Jewish believers in Jesus, but even putting them to death. And so over the next several years, this persecution begins to mount. It gets stronger. It gets greater. All against the preaching and teaching of the name of Jesus. All in an attempt to stop the forward movement of the Great Commission. Now, what we find in this prayer is the response and attitude of the apostles and the first disciples. We find here a spiritual kind of posture, a spiritual attitude, a spiritual conviction that's going to carry them forward in the midst of great opposition to what they've been called to do. The lesson we see in terms of what they're going through applies to us as well. 
However you describe this world in biblical terms, uh, the Apostle John in the Gospel of John describes this world as a place of spiritual darkness. Uh, In his first epistle, he says, the whole world lies within the power of the evil one. Or you think about um, uh, Paul himself, who in his introduction to the book of Galatians will speak of this world as this present evil age. Or you think about Jesus who said that believers in this world are going to have tribulation. Why? He said, well, because if they hate me, they're going to hate you as well. A world of tribulation where the name of Christ and those who follow Christ faithfully are going to be increasingly resisted and opposed. Or the Apostle Paul again, uh, describing the course of his life, which he was setting forth as an example for all believers, could speak of his life as a life in which he experienced weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. In all of these things, the the chief lesson that we learn out of this prayer is simply this, that it's vital to our spiritual and emotional well-being to know that the greatest friend we have is going to be God in his sovereignty. Or to put it this way, in this unsettling world that we live in, it is a spiritual balm to our souls to know that God's sovereignty is always our friend. That's the, the main lesson in a nutshell. The lives we live as Christians, the course of life in this world is unsettling, troubling, difficult with things that are seemingly reversals to our hopes and desires. In the midst of this, to grab hold of, like the disciples did, this theme of God's great sovereignty over all things is going to be that balm to your soul to be able to recognize that God's sovereignty is your friend in all circumstances, and in all the directions that life may take us. Now, there are three things that we find in their prayer related to God's sovereignty that are quite significant. The beginning of their prayer is an appeal to God's sovereignty. So their prayerful attitude appeals to the greatness of who God is and all of his sovereignty. And then they're going to, in terms of what they pray, reveal the very meaning of God's sovereignty. And they're going to conclude this prayer by essentially pointing out that God's sovereignty is their protection and their empowerment uh, to face all of the distressing things of life as they follow through on what God has commissioned them and called them to do. So in the first place, looking at the first few verses, uh, we consider the appeal to God's sovereignty. What they show us here, what the example of the disciples would show us is this, that our best appeal in prayer during times that are unsettling, difficult, reversals of fortune and so forth, our best appeal is to the sovereignty of God, to God's sovereignty. Look at what the disciples do here. 
They're released. They return to the gathering of the church. They report what happened. They pray. And their prayer is the bulk of this passage, halfway through verse 24 through verse 30. And the main theme then, and what they appeal to in their prayer, is the sovereignty of God. Now, we see this in several ways. First of all, the very word they use to address God. It's not your normal Greek word for Lord. It's, it's a word that's uh, only used a few times of God in the New Testament, only nine times altogether. It's the word that we would say in English looks like the word despot. It's the Greek word despotis. And this particular word, you think of despot, God is a despot. Well, our English usage always puts the term despot in a very negative category. Someone who is an absolute dictator, and it's not a whole lot of fun for those over whom he rules. But take away all the negative associations, and the word despotes here, applied to God, speaks of God as Lord, God as Master in all of his sovereignty. And that's why the NIV translation first, and the English Standard Version uh, more presently, interpret this and translate this as Sovereign Lord. To put the emphasis here upon God as Sovereign. And then in two particular ways, God is presented as Sovereign. First of all, with respect to creation, God is the author of all of creation. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Now, that's a great truth to recognize that the cosmic story has as its author God himself. It's God who is the creator. It's God who brought light out of darkness and order out of chaos. It's God who's made everything that is. God is the Lord over it all. The story of creation comes from God. God is the author of it. But the second thing we find is that God is also the author of redemptive history. And the way we see this in what they prayed is the fact that their next statement is a reference to messianic prophecy, prophecy through the mouth of David given by the Holy Spirit a thousand years before Jesus that spoke specifically to the very events that happened during Passion Week. This is from Psalm 2. It's the first couple of verses in Psalm 2 where it speaks of the, the um, why are the nations all in an uproar and why are the kings of the earth taking their stand together against the Lord and against his anointed? It, it, they're, they're quoting the very things which took place during Passion Week, but they're quoting what was prophetic scripture. But it's prophetic scripture that's specifically messianic, specifically related to the coming of God's Son, the Messiah, into this world. And so what they're saying there is that God is the author of redemptive history. Not just the author of all of creation, but, but the story of Jesus from beginning all the way through Passion Week and even to his exaltation at the Father's right hand. This story, God is sovereign over. It's God who's given us this story, and it's God who's brought this story into the world. It's God who has brought these things to happen and to take place. So the importance of the appeal to God's sovereignty cosmically, the importance to the appeal to God as the author of redemption, 
is a recognition by the apostles. We and who we are and our lives are inside of the story of Jesus. They knew this. They were those that had been saved by Christ, specifically brought out of the nation of Israel to be those to whom the Great Commission was entrusted. They knew their own lives were written into the great story of the life of the Redeemer, which falls within the great story of creation. But it's not just their significance and purpose and identity that they could see there. It's the recognition that if God so carefully authors creation and so carefully authors the story of redemption, then God is just as careful and God is just as sovereign over their own lives. So that's why they appeal to God's sovereignty in the first place. one of the benefits and blessing to us, the comforts to us as Christians. When you become a Christian and you begin to understand what God has done and what God continues to do, you can now look at your life and you can look at the story of your life and say the story of my life is connected to the story of Jesus Christ. Not just accidentally, purposefully, purposed by God connecting you to the story of His Son. So that all that God is doing in human history, your own life, your own story has meaning and significance and purpose. You are not a forgotten person. You are not little in the eyes of God. You are an indispensable part of what God has been doing. And in the story of Jesus, there you find all the great evidence that He has loved you and He has cared for you and He has drawn you unto Himself And when you believed on Him and you turned from your sin and placed your faith and trust in Him, then you came to know that you were part of His family. You were part of His story. You are part of what God is doing in this world. What what a great thing then in prayer to appeal to the sovereignty of God, especially when the world that you live in and the life that you live is one that somewhat resembles the life of the Apostle Paul in terms of hardships and difficulties and some persecution and calamities and things you just don't enjoy. Now, the second great lesson that comes out of this is found in verses 27 and 28 more particularly. And it's as as the apostles and the disciples are praying this, they're exhibiting and revealing the meaning of God's sovereignty. 
And the meaning of God's sovereignty is that God's sovereignty, uh, well, it's the fact that it means that God's sovereign will is in place. Let me try to clarify that. When we look at verse 27 and verse 28, it's going to tell us God's sovereignty is actually happening. It's in operation. It's functioning in all of the affairs of redemptive history. Now, there's a couple of ways in which we see this. Verse 27 in particular focuses upon the the wickedness of all of the evil conspirators against Jesus Christ. Verse 28 is going to speak to the sovereignty of God involved in all of that wickedness that has taken place. So in the first place, verse 27, we need to recognize that what we're, what's being revealed here in terms of God's sovereignty is that the wickedness of those who do wicked things, those who conspired against Jesus, even though it falls within God's sovereign plan, nevertheless is both wicked and vain. It's one of the things that Peter's careful to say on the day of Pentecost and in the day before uh, when they're arrested by the temple priest. You people of Israel, you killed Jesus. Now you did it through your leaders. You did it through abandoning Jesus when Pilate would have released him. But Pilate and the Roman officials and all that, they're guilty as well. What you did was wicked. What you did was evil. Now, that's very important to recognize. They did what they did, and they were morally responsible for what they did. They perpetrated evil. They did this. They are to blame. They are guilty. Yet, we also read the prophecies fulfilled that they plot in vain. The wicked seek to do what they seek to do, but what they hope to have happen fails to happen. This is so clearly the case with Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin who voted against Jesus, Pilate who really didn't have much of a clue as to what was going on, but he wanted to do the, the Jewish people a favor. Herod himself. All that the wicked conspired to do, ultimately, was to put an end to Jesus, put an end to what was going on, to quiet this whole movement. The Jewish people to protect themselves from any backlash from Rome. Rome doing what they did to try to keep the the Jewish people in check. All that the wicked conspired to do failed because I want us to consider the gospel perspective on this. You and I know that the crime against Jesus, there has been no act of wickedness in all of human history 
equals the evil that was done against Christ. Or to put it this way, the greatest evil in all of human history from God's perspective is that the innocent Son of God was put to death by the wickedness of evil human beings. God used the greatest evil done in human history to create the greatest good that has happened in all of human history. Because the one who was slain, as John the Baptist said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why they plotted in vain. Here we have the sovereignty of God in action. That which was intended by sinful human beings to be the greatest perpetration of evil that they could possibly imagine to do for their own ends and purposes fails utterly and fails completely. They didn't put an end to the name of Jesus. The name Jesus is known better than any other name in all the entire world. And they didn't put an end to the movement right then. Uh, The Christian movement... Uh, conquered every possible thing that was ever going to happen in order to lift high the name of Jesus. So verse 27 unlocks one aspect of the sovereignty of God in terms of its meaning. No matter what the wicked may choose to do, The goals, the ends, the aims of the wicked are vain under the sovereignty of God's ultimate purposes. Then verse 28 tells us what is in fact a great mystery, but it is a significant component to God's sovereignty, is that the actions of the wicked that are before us here, the actions are predestined within God's will. Now, you should note that you can read a half dozen different translations that give you all the different perspectives on how Greek translators want to present this. But in the Greek itself, there is no stronger way in the Greek language to establish the strength, the character of what God is doing here. It says God's hand and God's, it can be purpose, it can be plan, it can be decision, but it's God's hand, God's decision, God's power, God's purpose predestined these things to happen, decided beforehand for these things to happen predetermined these things to happen, foreordained these things to happen. It doesn't matter what English words we use. The expression itself is the strongest possible way to say God was in this completely. What happened, the way Jesus was put on the cross, all the evil that these people did, it happened in accordance with what God had planned to happen. Now I'm going to tell you that 
you will spend a vain amount of time <laughs> trying to understand how this is so. But people are going to ask the question again, how can it be that, that God can foreordain these kinds of things, that God can work out everything according to the counsel of his own will, and human beings still be responsible for the things they do? How can you reconcile that? Uh, Spurgeon, who preached often on these themes, was asked that question. Uh, Mr. Spurgeon, how do you reconcile man's moral responsibility and your doctrine of predestination. And he said, reconcile? There's no need to reconcile friends. And his point was, Scripture is teaching here both of these ideas. You may think they're at odds with each other. You may think somehow they're enemies. But the Scripture presents them as friends. No tension, no conflict. They are morally responsible for what they did by their own free choices. God has sovereignly ordained these things to take place. Now, the benefit for you and me is not to spend useless time trying to figure out how all of this is so. The benefit for you and me is to see that Scripture has taught us this from the very beginning. In fact, to see it worked out in the life of Joseph is one of the most beautiful things that you can ever spend time thinking about and meditating upon. And not just from the standpoint of going, wow, my family's not so dysfunctional. Look at Joseph's family. <laughs> you know, Wow, this is pretty bad to be you know, the next to the youngest son and you've got uh, ten brothers who are pretty much not happy with you. Well, you were a little bit arrogant and proud. You can see why they were upset. But to murder me? To want to kill me? To sell me into slavery? But the climax of that story is found in Genesis 50, verse 20. When they're all together, their father Jacob has passed away. The brothers are now afraid that Joseph is going to take revenge upon them. And so he addresses his brothers. I just want to say this. I don't know how to read the story of Joseph without feeling all of the human conflict and tension and struggles that go on. And to be amazed at Joseph in his godly response again and again and again to all the reversals of fortune in his life. And it had come to this point and to be able to say what he says to his brothers with tears, with weeping, with great love. As for you, you intended evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people would be kept alive as it was today. Write that 
into the story of Jesus. And Jesus, your elder brother, would say to you, you sinned against me. It's your sin that took me to the cross. You intended this for evil. But your Father in heaven intended this for good, for your spiritual good, that you would be spiritually alive and reconciled to God, not just today, but forever. The third lesson we see here in terms of what the disciples and their prayers present to us in terms of God's sovereignty is about protection and empowerment. Trusting in God's sovereignty is the greatest refuge and protection as well as empowerment in order to serve faithfully and with boldness. So when we come down to verse 29, it really is the... They've, they've prayed with all this appeal to God's sovereignty and to the meaning of God's sovereignty. And then they say, so, Lord, take note. <laughs> take note of what our enemies have said. Take note of their threats they've made against us. Take note of these conditions that we face. And then give us what we need in order to do all that you have commissioned us to do. Lord, take heed. So that's basically saying, Lord, give us your protection, and then also, Lord, give us your empowerment. Now, the lessons that come out of this, everything that they have prayed, Scripture teaches, is this. If God is sovereign, then the enemy, whatever form he takes, the enemy, whatever form he takes in your own life, hardships, affliction, persecutions, insults, calamities, cancer that doesn't look like it's going to be cured. Chronic pain that looks like it will never be alleviated. The loss of someone so close to you that you don't ever think you will get over the grieving. Whatever form the enemy takes against you, if God is sovereign, then the power of the enemy against you will always be only up to the boundaries that God himself has set. And it can go no further. Evil cannot do anything more to you than what the boundaries of God has set. A godly Christian woman once said to me something, and I'm like, I've been a pastor for 25 years, and she says to me, you know, don't you, because of God's sovereignty, that there's going to be a lot of things in your world and in your life that are going to hurt you so deeply. But 
not a single one of those things can ever harm you. And I thought, what a profound concept. Life is filled with pain. Life is filled with many things which will, in fact, hurt and hurt so deeply. But God will not allow harm, true harm. That which would, in fact, somehow destroy the, the graciousness and the goodness of His work in you. The second thing that we see in terms of protection and empowerment, if our lives are fully in God's hands, like the disciples, let us live the Christian life with boldness, with courage. My crazy nephew, as an EMT, refused to wear Kevlar vests. Because in the past few years, EMTs in Bakersfield were getting shot at, just like cops were getting shot at. Not publicized a lot. And I said, why won't you wear a vest? And he said, I'm protected by God. And, and because he's not afraid to share his relationship with Christ, I don't think his co-workers saw, well, they may have seen him as crazy, but they obviously saw the fact that he went into these situations loving his work, situations that were dangerous and heartbreaking, knowing he was protected by the sovereignty of God. But also empowered empowered to do courageously what God called him to do and would call him to do in those situations. We read here in verse 29 and 30 and 31 that the apostles were basically asking God, take note of what we face and now give us the courage and boldness to do all that you've called us to do. And when they concluded their prayer, God graciously gave them a resounding amen in terms of the shaking the place in an earthquake, and they were filled with the Spirit of God, and then they continued to go forth with boldness. I don't expect God to shake the place, but His Word can work deeply in us so that we would trust his protection and believe that as we go into a new year, we would have increasing boldness for the sake of Jesus. I want to conclude with application here, a couple of directions. There's misapplication for this doctrine. I want to mention that first. And then there's proper application for this doctrine. 
It's a very personal thing to me. But in the last couple of years, the church family knows that in our children's lives, we had two miscarriages. So two grandchildren that didn't make it to full term in life. And then a third grandchild born with Down syndrome. Now, in, in the context of what our children went through with those situations, Christian brothers and sisters misapplied the doctrine of God's sovereignty. With my daughter-in-law, things like this were said to her. Well, there's a reason for everything. She miscarried us twice in eight months. And to hear from someone, there's a reason for everything. Or even the words, God is sovereign. Were words that were as crass and inappropriate as going to a funeral of a friend's father who's died and you know your Christian friend has no hope that mom or dad is in heaven. And during the funeral, after the funeral service to say to them, well, I'm sorry your dad's in hell. What? And yet, when you're a pastor, you come in contact with a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who say the most inappropriate things about the sovereignty of God when compassion and kindness and words of comfort will be the words that are needed. You've got to believe that the devastation that happened with my daughter and son-in-law and not knowing that Breck, precious little Breck, <laughs> was going to be born a special needs baby, Down syndrome. It was profound and shocking to them. They didn't doubt God's sovereignty. It was just so contrary to every prayer they had prayed, like every mom and dad prays for a perfect little child. They were shocked. They were dismayed. And they will tell you, the first several months were very, very, very hard. And my daughter-in-law... They had waited six years after their first three and thought, maybe we should have more children. And to go into a pregnancy with great hope and the baby dies. And then have a second pregnancy happen a few months later. And everything looks fine. And at 12 weeks gestation, the baby dies. 
and to be told, well, you already have three kids. You just need to be satisfied with what God has planned for you. <laughs> That's devastating. But there's an appropriate way to tie into the sovereignty of God as your friend. And first and foremost is make sure that the sovereignty of God is truly your friend. Which means that as a believer, you've got to look at Romans 8.28 for we know that in all things God, God causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. Grab hold of that truth. Grab hold of that truth now. Learn to love the reality and truth that as a believer, God is in charge of your life. God is writing your story and, 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 and God is committed to, to the long story, the end of the story, that everything that goes on in your life, it is ultimately for your ultimate good. Look, it's been said this way. Is this the best of all possible worlds? No, it is not. But is this world under God's sovereignty the best pathway to the best of all possible worlds? And the answer is yes. Now that pathway may be everything you read in Pilgrim's Progress. It may be everything about how hard and, tr and difficult and, and, and calamities may happen and all that, but ultimately God intends all of these things for your good. There's no question about that. But learn that firsthand. Become someone who's made the sovereignty of God your own friend so that when the calamity comes. You're able to do the other side of Romans 8.28, which is Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. To trust the Lord with your whole heart and to lean not on your own understanding, which is confused, mixed up, sad, hurting, in all of your ways, acknowledge him so that he then would direct your paths. And then Paul says that when you know the God of all comfort, this is in 2 Corinthians, the first chapter, you, have, you are going to receive comfort with which you can comfort others. And the lesson there is until you have deeply made God's sovereignty your friend, you will not know how to comfort others in the challenges and difficulties which they go through. As you go into this new year, it may be the worst year of your life. But if you're committed to God's sovereignty being your friend, then you can trust him to give you all the protection 
you truly need and all the empowerment to live the life of the kind of life he's called you to and faithfully following Jesus. A bad year then can actually be the best year we've ever experienced. If God in his sovereignty is our closest friend. Let's pray. Lord God, be at work in us uh, through loss and heartbreak and difficulties and challenges. In all of these things, Lord, help us to trust you because you are good. You've got this whole world in your hands. And if you could bring the greatest good out of the greatest evil ever done, the story of Jesus, then you too, Lord, can work for our good in all the difficulties and challenges that we face. May it be so to your glory. In Jesus' name.